I'm going to give you guys a lot of credit, and ladies, I'm from New Jersey, so we do say guys and we mean everybody, that you would come out at 8 o'clock in the morning for the Old Testament. <laughs> Must be a testament that you're all saved <laughs> and even sanctified, so I appreciate that. All right, so we're going to move a little bit, take everything we learned yesterday, and we're going to apply it to a pericope in Genesis Remember, telling his stories. This is his stories. And he has a purpose for these stories. And the key is we have to figure out, each one of these books, each one of these pericopes, how, what did God intend to do with this story to the original audience? This is vital that we understand the message to the original audience first before we do anything else that applies to us. That is crucial and critical, that we understand the text. And once we understand the text, we can say, this is why God gave this to the original audience. And then once we know the reason why God gave it to the original audience, then we can say, what was the application for that audience? And I think many times it's an easy step. Some people say it's a long bridge from the Old Testament till today. And I don't think it's as long as we think it is sometimes or as treacherous. Because once we know why God gave that book to the original audience, the application is many times the same for us today. So let's go a little bit deeper. Remember, we're trying to ask the question, you know, why narrative? Well, there's two principles I want us to remember. The story has been consciously assembled by the author for a calculated effect on the audience. It's meant to move the audience to God's point of view. It's not just to give information. Sometimes, as Bible believers, we want to put this thing just as information. It's not. They're stories meant to motivate us. But also remember, too, the stories tellers control what we see and don't see, how we see it, and when we see it. So this morning, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to take this pericope... Genesis 4, 1 through 15. Now, this is a pericope all by itself. And you can tell this. If you had Hebrew, you know how it starts out. The Vahayeh is going to start out the narrative for us. Now, even our English Bible, now. So it seems like something's different change. And we'll notice there's a scene change as well. So we know we're dealing with the beginning. And if we go over to verse 15... We could actually stop, and then, then Cain went out. So we see that this is a new pericope. Now, we could probably take it all together, but for time's sake, we're just going to go do the first 15 verses. And if there was a newspaper around at the time or the Internet, this is what the picture would have looked like. This is probably what you use for your PowerPoint, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes. Now, the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain and said, I've gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portion. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. 
Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And Cain told Abel, his brother. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground and from, the, from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And it shall come about that whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed the sign for Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. So let's look at the characteristics of the narrative. And the first one we want to look at is the scene. Now this breaks down very nicely for us. It seems like there's four scenes in this pericope. We have the birth scene, which introduces the characters, and that's verses 1 and 2. We have Eve giving birth to Cain, and then it says simply she gives birth to Abel. Then we have the offering scene, which is verses 3 through 7. Then we have this confrontation scene, verse 8, which is crucial. Then we have a divine confrontation scene, verses 9 through 15. But notice how these scenes are developed. They're developed mostly through dialogue. So let's go through plot. So we know how the scenes are. So let's look at the plot. So the beginning would be what? Verses 1 and 2. So Cain and Abel are born. That's the beginning. We need that background information to know the rest of the story. Riken would call verses 3 through 7 the inciting movement or the rising action that's moving towards the conflict. Verse 8, you have the middle action or conflict. Then you have verses 9 through 10, which some would suggest is a further complication. Then you have the climax, verses 11 through 15. Now we have to walk through these parts, and it feels somewhat sterile, but we have to understand how Moses is putting together his narrative. Because not like you would do this, but others might just jump to the offering as the most important thing. Again, not any of you would have ever done this in your preaching. Those other pastors. But if you notice what he's trying to accomplish by looking at the narrative. So look at what's the conflict? Well, if you see in Genesis 4, 6 through 7, we see the conflict really clear. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? Have we seen this conflict before in Genesis? Where? 
We've seen it in chapter 3. God comes to his mom and dad, Cain's mom and dad, and said, don't eat of the tree. Yeah, we know the story. Now God comes and Cain acts like, you know, I, I know this story. <laughs> My parents have talked to you. I mean, if God came to you and talked to you, what would you say? Oh, what? But Cain takes it as a natural occurrence in life. So notice verse 6 and 7. This is important. Who's the conflict between? Cain and who? Cain and Abel? Why not? Now, again, not you, not Sunday school teachers, not you pastors, but have you ever heard a message where the conflict is between Cain and Abel? We all say yes. Not because we're guilty. Those other people are guilty. And we use, those, we use them as examples. But see, this helps us understand that's not the conflict. Moses did not tell us this story so that I would not hurt my brother who deserved it for far less than offerings or your brothers. That's not an application. We have other texts that are better for that. So what's the point of view? Well, here it seems clearly as third person, omniscient narrator. I mean, this person knows the conversation that takes place between God and Cain. We know that the conversation is shared between Cain and Abel. But we're not told exactly what Cain told Abel. We know that God does not accept Cain's offering, but the narrator refuses to tell us why. And some pastors have made it a thing, haven't they, about the offering. But what does the narrator tell us about the offering? Just wasn't accepted. That doesn't fill up a lot of preaching time on Sunday morning, does it? So we have to go, on, well, it's because of this reason he didn't accept it. He doesn't tell us that. All he tells us is what? Your offering is not accepted. That's all it tells us in the story. How does the narrate, narrator evaluate the individuals? I mean, as you read through Genesis 4, 1 through 15, whose side is the narrator on? God's or Cain's? God's. It's clear. And as we're reading it, we're with the narrator saying, whoa, wait a minute. Come on, Cain, listen to God. One must carefully note the point of view adapted by the narrator is the one that God would take and therefore the one that we must give credence to as well. And this is critical to understand what the author wants you to know and whose side he wants you to take. Remember, a narrator in a narrative the author is trying to get us involved in a story. And he says, who do you want to associate with? That's the, when we go back to movies. You always feel something for the lead character. Either hatred or you feel an identification. And God does the same thing through narrative. So he wants to say, whose side are you on? And at this point we're saying, we're hoping for Cain to do the right thing. Now remember, we have read this story umpteen times we have to read it with fresh eyes and slow down 
and saying, what is God doing with the story? See, the story is a contract between the author and the public that the world depicted in a story is not fictional but real, and the stories are chronicles. This will help some of the questions we had yesterday about how do I tell, argue with somebody that says these are fantasies. Well, look at the contract that the author sets up with us. Does he want us to believe that this story happened? Yes, it is. This is unlike many other storytellers who contract lifelike worlds but do not expect their readers to regard them as actual reality. In a sense, the modern reader who doubts the biblical story is violating the contract and cannot be said to represent the intended public. I think that's a great quote by Amit to understand this idea of narrative criticism and how we should take the text. This is how he wants to take the point of view. This really happened. So let's look at the characters. Who are the characters in the story? Well, let's look at who are the round characters. Who are the characters we know most about in this story? God and Cain. How would we, what would Eve be in this story? She's mentioned, what kind of character would Eve be? Flat. What does she do? Gets pregnant, gives birth. I'm sorry, moms, that's the best you get. And I could probably preach that, and moms say, yes, I get no gratefulness for my kids either. I start the story and I leave it there, I understand. But that's not what the text is about, because she's a flat character. Poor Abel. What does he do? Dies. He doesn't even say anything. Now he does. He acts as the foil. And many times in the Old Testament, you always have one character who's being tested. And there's another character who acts as the foil. Who does the right thing. Which shows that the right thing is possible. So Abel does the right thing. But he really, he starts the conflict But the conflict is not just him doing the right thing. The conflict is between Cain and God. So Cain undertakes an experiment in living. So how do we know about Cain? Well, we know him through his actions that he doesn't offer the right offering. Now, we want to take Cain to task here and say, come on, buddy, you should have known. Well, if you don't have the rest of the Bible in mind, how would Cain have known the right offering? If all you have is Genesis 1, 2, and 3, how would he have known? Maybe, but does the text say that? And plus, when God provided for his parents, it wasn't an offering. This is the first offering with no directions. Cain brought the best of his field. Abel brought the best of his flock. That's all we know. The conflict is not really over the offering, but how Cain responds to the offering. What about the setting? Now, the setting is interesting in four. We really don't know the setting. All we know is really based on lack of information that it's outside the garden because of verse 24 in chapter 3. 
So God drove the man out in the east of the Garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So how far did the family go outside the garden? Could Cain and Abel see the cherubim with the sword? Maybe the first thing Adam and Eve said, don't go near the angel with the sword, guys. It's not going to work out well. They go far enough not to see the garden because it'd be a constant reminder of what they lost. We don't know that, and we shouldn't fill in the white spaces. All we know is that there are outside the garden. It's not a perfect environment, but it's not devoid of God's intervention. We see that God helps, if that's the translation, or at least God allows man to multiply. And that was a blessing that he gave in Genesis 1 and 2. So we see that God's allowing man to fulfill his mandate to act as his regent over the world, even though the fall had taken place. He provides the flock, he provides the food, and he even provides his presence. That's the setting for us. So let's look at the dialogue, because so much happens with the dialogue. Now, Eve is the first one to speak in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, but it's not a true dialogue. It's almost a soliloquy, a monologue, if you will. She's not speaking to anyone in particular. All she says is, I've gotten a man, child, and it's either with the Lord or it is, as Steve pointed out, an accusative, I got a man, child, a Yahweh. But the reality is, that's all she says. She just makes this statement. Now, that continues the story of Genesis 1 and 2, but it really just introduces the character for us of Cain. In verses 6 and 7, we get the next dialogue, and that's the Lord with Cain. And this is critical. Then the Lord said to Cain, why is your eye angry, and why is your countenance fallen? I mean, really? This is the first mulligan. This is the first divine do-over. Don't miss this. I mean, one of the... If Adam and Eve heard this conversation, wouldn't they say, Cain, listen up. We only got one chance and we blew it. That's why you're not in there and you're over here. But here Cain hears the voice of God and God says, why have your countenance fallen? Oh, and by the way, if you do well, God has given him a chance to do it over. That's why it really doesn't matter what the offering was except to give him a chance to do it over. And all he had to do was what? Go to Abel and said, Abel, I'm going to make you a trade. I'll give you the best of my fruits. We're going to barter right here. I'll give you the best of my fruits. Give me a good lamb. I'm going to bring it to God because I didn't get it right. God corrected me. I'm going to do it over. How many would do it? No, I'm not doing it. Why? I brought my best, and you should accept it. Really? Any stubborn people in the room? I mean, in your churches? <laughs> Cain, if you notice, look at verse 6. 
Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and is desirous for you, but you must master it. I know Cain must be older, but he strikes me as a teenager because what's his response? Nothing. I've had some of these conversations with my own kids when they were teenagers. Hey, guys, this is what you need to do. Just do it. And they look at you and go, hmm. It's incredible that Cain says nothing. Then we have the next conversation is verse 8. Then Cain told his brother, what did he say? We don't know. Man, we want to know. Yes. And some of us who are very creative could probably make up the conversation. Do you know what God said to me? He's really being unfair. But notice the narrator tells us what he wants us to see, when he wants to see it. And obviously he didn't think it was important for us to know the conversation. Now, we want more information, but God says, no, that is enough. Then the Lord, the next conversation, verse 9, then the Lord said, where is Abel your brother? And he says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? This just really communicates that he's a teenager. (laughs) I don't know. It's like family circus, you know, where, you know, who did it? I don't know. You know, it's like someone else is in the family called I don't know. <laughs> but that's exactly what's happening here. Pure teenage dialogue. He says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And you are cursed from the ground. Look at verse 13. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear what behold you have driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face i shall be hidden i'm sorry but i have to stop here and say what did you think was going to happen cain you didn't listen to god when he was face to face with you talking you do exactly the opposite what god wanted you to do and now you're upset that there's judgment Where'd you grow up? But that's what the author wants you to feel. This is incredulous that he would reject grace and then complain about the judgment. Dialogue is extremely important in this pericope. Matter of fact, it takes up So far, we've looked at scene, plot versus conflict, point of view, characterization. The most important characteristic narrative in this pericope is dialogue. It takes up the majority of the story. And this tells us clearly, clearly that the conflict is not between Cain and Abel. It's not over the offering. So the offering start the conflict. It's about the conflict is between Cain and God. So let's look at the structural level because we have God speaking. And I would suggest in Genesis 1, to 3, 1 through 2, 3, we have power of God's word to create. 2, 4 through 5, you have power of God to provide for man. Then man's response to God's word and God's provision. 
Now, in Genesis 3, we see man's response to God, which wasn't good. And you see God's response to man's response, which was to curse. But you see God's provision and grace. This is meant to tell us a story. Genesis 4 is not all by itself. It's not meant to stand alone. It's meant to go with what went before us. And I would suggest all of Genesis is really about how will God's people, remember he's writing to Israel, the second generation as they're entering the land, will you listen to God's voice through his prophet Moses? And what do we expect? If you listen to God's voice, good things happen. If you don't listen to God's voice, bad things happen. We've seen it with the parents, and now we see it with the offspring. And what do we see? In four, man's response to God's word and God's provision. See, Genesis is not just information. I want to say this over and over again. It's theological history. It's meant for theological purpose, and that's to motivate God's people. Interpreters are therefore called to discern not only what the author was saying, but also what he was doing with what he was saying in any given pericope. History is therefore never history, but history for The writer of the biblical narratives had ideological and theological purposes, probably that of changing the lives of their reader. And that's what as pastors and teachers we want to do with the word of God. And when we understand the text the way God meant it in this way, we're not preaching history, we're preaching life change. And each one of us wants to do that in our churches. And the way we do it is by understanding God's genres. The information was not only the goal of these authors. Transformation was an essential aim of their writing. People were to read these stories and to be moved, to be changed, to conform to the image of God that he created in his word. Longman does get it right here. He says, the concern of the text is not to prove the history, but rather impress the reader with the theological significance of these acts. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. I want you to use your imagination. This is a truck. Can you all see the truck? You're good. You're creative. So here, the wheels. It's a flatbed truck. Okay, flatbed truck. This truck is history. And it's moving through. Now, sometimes that's all we do. We see history. But biblical history, it's flatbed, it takes the theological purpose, it puts it on the history. And now the history carries the theological purpose for the reader. It's not an empty truck, just history. It's history truck carrying the theological purpose. So when you read Kings, when you read Chronicles, it's not just history. It has a theological purpose that goes to the original audience. See, this truck is always going to the original audience. It doesn't go like this. No, I'm going to go to the modern audience. No, no, it can't do that. It has to go to the original audience first. It goes there and parks. We look at it and say, oh, this is why the truck drove here. 
for this purpose. Then we can turn it around and say, okay, now I can drive back to my neck of the woods and apply it. But if you go from the text here right to my neck of the woods and we don't go there, we violate this. And we'll never know why God said it if we jump right to application. But sometimes it's a lot easier to jump to application. All right, so let's go structure level. Let's look at the style. I mean, what are the rhetorical devices that God uses in Genesis 4? Well, the first one is dialogue. Not unusual, but there's not a lot of dialogue in the Old Testament. And when you see it, it becomes important, especially when God speaks, right? It's not like every day God's speaking. And we read through Genesis 4, well, God speaks, Cain's listening, Cain decides to do the opposite thing. What? Every one of us as readers should be shouting to Cain, say, Cain, come on, wake up, buddy. Do you really not want to listen to God? He's given you a chance to do it over. Don't you want to listen? And if we're not reading it that way, we're not reading the text closely enough. And we missed the main point. There's irony. Verse 14. You know, from your face I shall be hidden. And I shall be a vagrant and wander on the earth. Well, what did you expect? You had the opportunity to do right. Now Cain doesn't want what he rejected in the first place. God said, okay, you don't want to listen to me? Okay, then I'm going to put you away from me. And how many times do we counsel people that find themselves in the same exact position? If they would have listened to you, because you could see where their lives were going, right? And all of a sudden it goes that way and they come back and say, you didn't tell me that. (laughs) Come on. We've seen this story before in Genesis chapter 4. And notice this idea of cursing. The Lord has driven. Look at verse 11. And now you are cursed. Where have we heard that before? Genesis 3. Adam and Eve did not listen to the word of God. And what was the result? Curse. Folks, do you think God's setting up a pattern here? If you listen to God's word, you hear God's word and don't do it, what would you expect? Curse. So here are the Israelites standing on the brink of the promised land. They have to listen to this prophet Moses. When they go in, they have to take all his words and go into the land. And what's ringing in their heads? Genesis 3. If we don't listen to the word of God, what's going to happen? Cursed. We've seen it happen with Cain and Abel. With Cain. What happened when he disobeyed God? It was cursed. Then Moses puts together the blessings and cursings of the law in Deuteronomy 20 to 32. And what does that say? If you obey God, what does he do? Blesses. And if you disobey God, what will he do? And what will he curse? I will kick you out of the land. 
Where's that come from? Genesis 4. I'm kicking you out of the land. See, that is the observations that we can make, this idea of blessing and cursing. It starts off in seed form in Genesis 4, but that's it. Do you think our people need to hear that message today? That there's blessings for following God and there's discipline if we don't? Yes. That's why this pericope works so well in preaching. Because it's the idea, will you follow God's word? Now, we want to jump down to verse 15. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, because will, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. Oh, this is where it really gets good preaching, right? What is the mark of Cain? And I got the theological answer. It's right here. We have no clue. But we've seen a lot of ink spilt on it. Now, based on all that we've said, why didn't God tell us what the mark of Cain was? It, we didn't need to know. But we want to. It will preach. We made it preach even if we don't, even if we hadn't known it. And we conjecture all over the place, and we miss the point of the narrative. The point of the narrative is not the mark. It's simply that God provided for Cain in grace. Do you think if God would have told us the mark, what would that have done? I think Dave Roseland has the same mark that Cain has. <laughs> Yeah, did I said, say, wow, this is great, which just means we can't beat him or you can't pick on him anymore, okay, <laughs> verbally. See, but that's what we want to do with the text. See, it's easy to make those things important that we think are important, but the storyteller controls what we see and don't see, how we see it, and when we see it. And we violate the storyteller. We violate the narrator when we jump the gun and fill up the blanks that he never intended to be filled in. And this is where we have to honor authorial intent and not fill in the blanks. Could God have told us? Sure. But he didn't. So can we respect the silence of God and tell the story his way and not our own way? I want to change it up a little bit because I want to move to Ruth. But before we move to Ruth, gentlemen, if you would come by, let's take some questions now if that's okay. And we'll take some questions on Genesis and then we'll move to the book of Ruth and we'll try to do the same thing. So if there's any questions, I'm tethered and I prefer not to have to throw the microphone, so thank you. Uh, I was just, this more of an observation, I think, about what we were reading verse 14 about the restless wanderer. It, uh, you know, not only through their history, but when you think about the Jews, they've been the wandering Jews for so long, 
So I, I thought that was a great observation. So appreciate that. Thank you. Um, maybe I misunderstood you, but uh, you said that the focus really wasn't on the sacrifice. Uh, the problem with that is we had three New Testament verses that seemed to indicate that was the issue. Uh, Hebrews 11.4, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he being dead yet speaketh. Then First John three twelve, and Cain was of that wicked one who murdered his brother, and because his own works were, I'm just summarizing, his own sure. works were, you know, not accepted. And then Jude 11, we talk about the way of Cain in reference to false teachers. Um, you know, the New Testament focuses upon the sacrifice. And also, if we look at, you know, the context of Genesis, the cursing, the ground was cursed. And then the sacrifice uh, that God provided for Adam and Eve when they fell was a, a uh, we assume certainly was a, a bloody sacrifice. Some animal was killed. And then also the book of Genesis was written to Moses. We had the sacrificial system, which comes into play. So, I mean, you know, how can we say that, you know, we, we don't want to add to the text, certainly when we look at the original account, but we had the completed scripture. And so when we're preaching this, you know, shouldn't we focus on what the New Testament focuses upon while not ignoring the Old Testament? Great question. And let me answer no. The answer really is no. Now, let me tell you the difference, though. Are we preaching the text or are we preaching systematic theology? See, what you suggested was preaching systematic theology that goes from Genesis to the New Testament. If you were going to preach this to the original audience, what did they know? Yes, they knew the Levitical system. But the Levitical system is not highlighted here. Matter of fact, all we hear is the dialogue that gives Cain the opportunity to do it over again. And the readers would have understood, hey, Cain, no, Cain wouldn't have known. See, what I'm saying is we have to stay with the original audience. Now, if you want to bring that in, that's fine, but I think you're preaching outside of Genesis then. And this is my own personal opinion about preaching, of preaching the text the way it was supposed to be received to the original audience. And I think so much of our preaching today is really a biblical theology, especially when we move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And I think we do a disservice to the Old Testament if we don't allow it to stand on its own feet without having the support of the New Testament. Now, I do believe that in sometimes, like the book of Leviticus, we have to go to Hebrews. But I believe that the book of Ruth, the book of Genesis, can stand on its own without going to the New Testament. Because if we do that, we say that the original readers did not have all the information they needed to understand this book. And I won't go there 
when God is the author of the book. Can you, um, one of the questions uh, John Brummett surfaced uh, a second ago was in Genesis 3.21. It says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So obviously we don't think the garments of skin just fell out of the sky. Sure. You know, there was an obvious blood sacrifice that happened right there on the spot. So when you bring blood sacrifice into the Cain and Abel story, that's not preaching the New Testament. Uh, that's not reading the New Testament back into the old. It's not preaching systematic theology. It's preaching what uh, the biblical text says. And earlier, you know, you said that um, regarding the curse, Genesis 4, you know, we've got to have ringing in our ears Genesis 3 regarding the curse. And so I guess my question is, why can't we do the same thing with blood sacrifice oh, you can. concerning Genesis 3.21? Yeah, I'm not saying you can't. But I'm saying it's not the purpose of the author. It starts the conflict, but the conflict is not over the sacrifice. The conflict is really between Cain and God. Will Cain listen to the voice of God? Now, it started with the sacrifice because he did it wrong. That's fine. Why he should have known or not known, we're not told. And the text doesn't tell us why he didn't bring blood. But what I'm saying is, based on the narrative, the conflict is not... The sacrifice starts the conflict, but the conflict really hits its apex at, will you listen to the voice of God? And he gives you a chance to do it over again. And he could have brought the right sacrifice. And it would have had to be blood. So you're absolutely correct there. Let, let me ask you a question. on the um, uh, <clears throat> Who do you identify the serpent as in Genesis 3 if you're teaching just Genesis? The serpent. You don't identify that as Satan? It depends what my purpose is in preaching at that point. Now, all, since we're doing a New Testament audience, everyone knows it's the serpent, is, this, is the devil. Yeah, well, you know this is an area of controversy because there, there are those like Calvin was one. Uh, Rydelnik addresses that because of the influence of, of uh, I think it was Rashi in the Middle Ages, you know, where you know, as a Jew, they don't have Revelation uh, 12 or 13, the devil, the serpent of old, which identifies it. And I had, you know, I had Old Testament professors at Dallas would say you can't make that identification because you cannot add, it's adding to the text anything that the original audience would not have understood. And I have a real problem with that because that they may not have needed to understand it, but God gave us the rest of the story in the New Testament. And so I don't think it's teaching systematic theology. I think that because we have the rest of the story, we have a duty to preach what may not have been fully evident to, for their purposes to the original audience, but we're preaching to a 20th century church age audience and we need to tell the rest of the story. And I don't think that's just doing systematic theology. I think that's dismissing it too easily. Well, that's, you know, for the snake, I have no problem with that. I want to be careful. I think it's the same principle in Genesis 4. I think I want to be careful bringing too much in to the Cain and Abel story because then we're saying that the original audience did not have enough information. And I don't believe God was incomplete in his revelation. You know, see, you know here's, here, here's a problem. I, 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 as I've worked through this, you know, I, I think you're a writer, especially in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, that Moses, or who, or if Moses is using what was originally 
written and he's under divine editorship is it's there's a there's a, an economy of words he's telling us a lot less than he's telling us okay for specific purposes to set up just the prologue of of why god calls abraham and as andy's pointing out now i'm a hunter are you a hunter no sir okay if you come to this text if you're a hunter if you're a butcher if you've worked with animals and dead animals the text simply says God clothed them with garments of skin. But if you know anything about what's going on here, he had to show them how to properly kill the animal. No, they had never killed anything. They didn't know how to do it. They didn't know what death was. Then he had to show them how to properly skin the animal so that they're not um, getting it, uh, uh, you know, cutting into any organs so that that affects the hide or anything like that. Then he has to teach them how to properly clean the hide, how to stretch the hide, how to then uh, put together whatever solutions they're going to use in order to treat the hide so it doesn't just become hard. In other words, this is a very long teaching process that the word that the text covers in one short phrase, he clothed them with garments. That took a lot of time. And I don't think it's unreasonable to to undertake to read it, read and understand that he's giving them instruction about this. This is a foundation for sacrifice, which it becomes later on. So I, I think that, granted, I understand your point. What would they have understood at the beginning? But they're on the plains of Moab, and there's a whole lot that they knew that that I think could be uh, understood as background to the. To, to what's going on in Genesis 3 and then Genesis 4 with the sacrifice. And I understand, I would say that the conflict isn't just Cain and, and God because God says sin is crouching at the door. There's what I, I think God is defining what the conflict is. It's between Cain and his sin nature. Oh, I, I don't doubt that. It's the opportunity sin's telling you don't have to listen to God, which is exactly what his parents did. So I don't disagree with that. Other questions? That's why we decided to do questions in the middle. I'm going to try to try to come to your come to your defense here a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I think what I'm understanding you saying is you're you're totally agreeing that the offering was not the right offering. Yes. And it was not done in faith. Everything that's talked about in the New Testament, you're agreeing with that. But the real issue is not that he made the wrong offering the first go-round. The real issue is he was given a second chance, the mulligan, the divine mulligan, as you said, and he was given that second chance, and he just totally rejected it. That's really the focus of the story. The offering was incorrect. Nobody's going to argue with that, right? You wouldn't argue with that. Mm -hmm. But he had an opportunity to do the right thing, and he didn't, and that's what's really being emphasized in this story. Right. Am I paraphrasing what you were saying? Okay. The, The wrong, the incorrect sacrifice starts the conflict. But it's not the main part. Uh, it doesn't hit the apex there. That's all. Might it be helpful to maybe distinguish a little bit more between uh, exposition? In other words, we're talking about preaching. You have a variety of uh, purposes for what you might do on a Sunday morning. Distinguish uh, exposition from the exegetical process, and I think what you're emphasizing is in the exegetical process, we're trying to understand what the original audience understood, and and then from there, now we can preach and do all kinds of things. We can bring in a lot of New <laughs> Testament, and legitimately, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to say that some some do. So my argument. 
So my the distinct my practice is not to jump to the New Testament. Ever. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not ever, because Leviticus forces us there. Well, what I'm saying is that... But you are absolutely right. If we make a distinction between the two, that helps clarify what you're trying to clarify, I think. So I'm coming to your defense. Thank you. I appreciate (laughs) that. Could we maybe return to something that that Robbie uh, has raised here, and that is uh, at the end of Chapter 3, the text simply says that God created garments for them. Now, how much do we, and I don't want to use necessarily the word read into that, but how much do we add to that as we move forward? I mean, we certainly have been told that, okay, here is you know, the sacrifice. Well, it doesn't tell us there's a sacrifice there. Uh, it simply says that God provides for them. It could exactly be like Robbie said that God taught them. But at that point, we're moving to conjecture because the text doesn't say. Now, it could have happened that way, or God could have simply killed the animals and provided it. See, we're not sure, at least from this text. But what Robbie said is pure, you know, purely possible. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay, Dr. McGinnis, thanks. Uh, here's my question. In uh, the book Issues in Dispensationalism, where you have the progressives and the classic dispensationalists kind of arguing back and forth. Uh, Bach says, or he calls for a more holistic reading of the text by classic dispensationalists. What he's talking about is we do need to take like future truth, like in the New Testament, and kind of overlay that with something in the Old Testament to give the whole meaning. And uh, so when I read that, I thought... We should be more careful. At least we should tell our audience, into the original intended audience, this is the intent and meaning of the text. Now, if we also want to come back then and say the New Testament adds this flavor to it or makes an application perhaps, and maybe you're endorsing that that's a possibility, but we just need to distinguish for our audience. Yes. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. I want to be careful of using the idea of meaning. And because that would rob the original audience of the full meaning of the text. So can we do this then? I notice this a lot with like, well, this is a this text in the Old Testament is a first coming, and this one's a second coming. But really, in the original intended audience, could they distinguish that? Maybe well, not. Peter seems to indicate they couldn't probably. Mm-hmm. So we sh- we yes we do bring that up, but we do it after we've said they couldn't distinguish. Mm-hmm. Is that the right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. See, there's always there's. I'm always reading the Old Testament. I'm not Jewish. I don't read it without an eye to the New Testament. However, I want to be very careful because what I see today is that we're too quick to bring a New Testament understanding into the Old Testament, and this is what we get on a Reformed brothers for, for letting the New Testament dictate how we interpret the Old. What I'm trying to do is clean the table and say, what is the Old Testament saying? And preach that text. Now, there are times, again, I'll use Leviticus. It's my whipping boy. Okay? None of us, when we called to worship, we didn't kill a sheep this morning. We didn't have wave offerings. Why? Because we have the book of Hebrews. So I have to do that. But I'm saying in other texts, like Genesis 4, I don't necessarily have to come 
to a fuller meaning like the New Testament does with it to preach this text. That's all I'm saying. Okay, that's helpful. Thanks. Uh, please help me understand why am I mistaken to think that the verses that our brother mentioned in the New Testament as going contrary to your point uh, in the situation with Cain and Abel, for my impression, really resonate with the idea in the Old Testament because the Bible says that the Lord was unhappy with Cain and with his offering. So, uh, so it really confirms to me. So I need to understand why it's wrong. So I don't, I don't understand that it's going different directions, but really saying, see, it was him first. And because of who he was and, and his attitude, his sacrifice came that way. Right. What I'm doing is I'm saying, okay, the storytellers control what we see and don't see. The original audience would not have had the New Testament to see all those parts filled in. You're right. They, the, what my brother filled in was not incorrect to the text at all. I am interested to know how the New Testament writers knew that, mm-hmm. but they're making a, you know, a systematic theological argument probably. However, what I'm saying is based in Genesis 4, the storyteller doesn't tell us. Moses doesn't tell us all of it. Now, how you want to expose that to your people, that's up to you. But I'm saying I don't want to violate this text. But if you add something to it, now I think we're preaching this text plus a New Testament understanding. And that's fine. But I think we have to recognize that's what we're doing. Thank you. It's sort of like another example. I'm sitting here. Another example is like with with Abraham. We, We preach through the focal point in Genesis 22. You can read Genesis 12 to 22 till you're blue in the face. You will never, ever discover when or how Abraham came to understand resurrection. And, but that, but I think that, I think that when we teach it, we don't, we, we make that distinction that that's not here, that's not the message to the original audience. My point is, I think we fail our current audience if we don't Go to Hebrews 11 and, and say, now, what, what is not said in, in Genesis is that he understands resurrection and he's finally understood that, that God's going to be true to his promise of a seed no matter what, even if he has to bring Isaac back from the dead. And that's what, get, that's what gives him such a, a strength in Genesis 22. I would, even though he might not have known, at that point, based on his faith, and based on the promise that he was trusting in, whether or not he called it resurrection, at that point in Genesis, I do believe he thought that God was going to give him back. Yeah, he didn't yeah. Know well, that's what, that's what Hebrews 12 says. Right. Is, so he didn't know how. Right. So I don't even need to go to New Testament to say he knew his boy was coming back. Yeah. But you do fill in But that, that's filling in. Mm-hmm. And I bet if you were talking to somebody who was Jewish who knew the Old Testament and not the New, they wouldn't be coming to that conclusion. I think they have to because he was the son of promise and he was the only one. He wasn't getting another one. There was only one way that he would kill that boy. He was trusting God. Yeah, that'd be an interesting Allah. Mm -hmm. Sure. As the brother mentioned a while ago about the Bateman book where Bach and Elliot Johnson are going back and forth, uh, I'm going to use the word meaning for right now, the stableness of meaning. I appreciate uh, what you're doing about that. My question has to do with 
Elliot Johnson said dispensationalism is narrative theology. So we have this concept of narrative for the biblical theology. But then other people, let's say Sawheimer, the distinction between event and text. And, and uh, I see that you're focusing on peripety theology, say, of Curvella. And so what I'm asking you is this, is that whenever we're reading the narrative, because Genesis is a prologue and it has certain motifs that are developed and, and we were not giving, we were not given the oral tradition of Genesis. We were given the revelation or the text through Moses, as you know, of course. So my question is this. How do we avoid, or should we avoid an event focus rather than viewing the, the narrative world as it is and at the same time, uh, thinking about the implications as it relates to progressive revelation. You bring up a great point that all the narrative is based on event. But we're not preaching the event. We're preaching the writing, the revelation of that event. That's important concept to keep in mind. So everything, and that's where we differ from the liberals. We're saying the events are true. However, we're not preaching the event. We're preaching what the text says about the event. Okay. Um, when we talk about what the original audience understood, obviously there's progressive revelation. We have a, you know more broader picture than they did. But when we go back to Hebrews 11.4, it says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. Faith is based on revelation. And it's like he understood clearly the offering was, was better because of, I believe, prior revelation to Adam. I mean, you're not going outside the text there. You're, you're looking at prior information, and he's acting by faith on that information. I, I think sometimes we don't give credit enough for what the original audience understood. You know, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and saw it and was glad. Uh, he may not have understood completely everything about, you know, who Christ was and all that, but there was a coming Messiah. Um, I personally think we tend to minimize without trying to add more into the text, obviously, uh, what they understood. He's acting by faith on information. Sure. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. It's just that Moses doesn't tell us that in Genesis 4. And when I'm preaching the text, now remember, I'm an Old Testament professor. Okay? I, what I'm saying is the text can stand on its own. Now, are there other things that we can fill in? Sure. But I think we do a disservice to the Old Testament to say we have to verify the message of the Old Testament with the New. This is God. That first part is God's revelation, and it can stand on its own. Now, does the New Testament fill in details? Absolutely. And when I go to Hebrews and I preach that, I'm saying, oh, look it. This is how the writer of Hebrews understood Genesis 4 because it's what Kaiser calls antecedent theology. I can always go back and assume that my readers knew everything behind when I'm writing. But they did not understand what went forward. 
So for the message for the Israelites, that second generation, how to be in Genesis 4. That's all I'm saying. You make excellent points, and it's absolutely true. I can't argue it from a systematic point of view. Now, if you want to say this is how we're supposed to preach the whole Bible as whole Bible, that's fine. But when I'm preaching the text and I'm saying I'm preaching Genesis, I stay, will stay in Genesis. Okay, that, raises, that goes back to my first question is when you preach Genesis 3 and you're preaching it as Genesis 3, do you identify the serpent as Satan? Because yeah, the original yes. audience did not know that. And, and, and nobody has that in Scripture until, you, you, until John right. gets the revelation. Right. So how can, you, totally how can you, on the basis of your principle, justify identifying the serpent as Satan? I am not totally consistent, and you point out the one area I'm not consistent. <laughs> okay? Matter so of fact, I was preaching through the book of Job. Job chapter 1 and 2. And I skipped and said Jesus instead of God. And somebody in the church came up to me after and says, you were in Job, why would you say Jesus? Oh, yeah, you're right, it was God. Well, see, that, that, I see, am not totally consistent. See, my point is, if you do that with Satan, with the serpent in Genesis 3, then why can't you do that into Genesis 4? You know, once you've opened the door, you've got to keep driving through it. Oh, and that's what I'm just saying. I'm inconsistent, so I'll stop the car. <laughs> <laughs> Well, who was it that said consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds? <laughs> and it's because it's so important. And I'm not saying this, you know, this is a tightrope that we're walking, folks, when we're talking about preaching. And it's easy to fall off on either end. And I'm trying to be careful. And I'm, you might say I'm reactionary, but I see so much of the Old Testament. When people are preaching the Old Testament, they don't stay in the Old Testament. They end up going to the New and just use this as illustration. And I think we need to be careful. I agree with you 100% on that. Thank you. I'm over here. Um, I'm not a pastor. I'm the guy that sits in front and has to listen. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I want to give you some encouragement for this because when I'm in the Old Testament, I want Old Testament. I want to understand what was going on then. I don't... I can go and look in a concordance or and use Lagos or something to see what the New Testament says about it, but when someone's teaching me the Old Testament or when I'm reading it, that's what I want. I want to know where did how did Abraham come to this? Maybe it's explained later in the New Testament, but I want to be right there. And I, I agree with you on that. If if I was in the if I was studying in the New Testament and there was an Old Testament reference I definitely want to jump back and see how the New Testament is interpreting the Old. But when I'm in the Old Testament, that's where I want to be. And I appreciate that. But again, we have to be careful because there's some text in the Old Testament that we do need further revelation to make sense of or we would be practicing. Here, let's jump to Psalms. You know, blessed is, you know, happy is he who dashes your little ones against the rocks. Let's preach that on Sunday. And I'm going to take my grandson up and I'm going to say, let's practice with him. Let's make it real. Okay? And everybody said, wait a minute. Maybe we shouldn't preach that one. Well, maybe that's just for Israel and it's during the trib. Or maybe it has future when God deals with Israel's enemies and there's divine retribution. So I'm even jumping past the church age maybe for that psalm 
and applying it. It doesn't necessarily apply to us as though God will deal with maybe with our enemies, but at least in the United States, we don't have the same issues. But you see what I mean? So I have to jump forward if I'm going to say application or just say this is going to be for Israel. Other questions? Yes, I got a question about the uh, establishing the truth or historicity of a passage based on the genre and intent of the author. Because I believe you stated that, you, that the passage does not need to be defended based on because because Moses writes it as though it's true. But we have other passages where the other where the author writes it as true, but we know that it's false. Like say the Protocols of the Elders of Zion or the accounts in the Book of Mormon. So don't we need a non-arbitrary way to to determine? You know, apart from authorial intent, whether something is histor- historical or true. No. What does Hebrews say? And our brother just brought the verses up. By faith. By faith we believe that God created the world. We don't need a stone. Don't need a fossil. Because his text said he did it. Now you say, how do I defend it against the Book of Mormon? I don't think we do. Now, I think there's evidences for it being true, but if you want to get down to zero possibility that it's wrong, we're not going to get there because this thing we call the Christian life is a matter of faith, not of evidence. If it was of evidence, we'd be able to see, and guess what? Once we saw it, it's not what? Faith. I appreciate what you're saying, brother. I really do. And even as an academician, I should have all my rules and all my evidences for historicity. And there are some. I mean, Genesis, just look at the names, the places. That's two specific versus how Jesus used the parables. That's one way of doing it. Even in Jonah, we could do the same thing. But if you're looking at somebody who wants to argue and say, well, you're no better than this, say, okay, if you want to believe that, that's fine. However, go ahead and read the Book of Mormon, read those other things, and say, what about your eternal life? Do you want to bank your eternal life on those books or do you want to book, bank it on this book that says I have eternal life based on my belief in Jesus Christ? Go ahead. It's up to you. It's your life. You live it, man. <laughs> but do know that you will stand before God someday and you, he will not take the excuse, well, I believe that book over this book. You blew it. Uh, Dr. McGinnis, um, back here. Oh, Hold on. Um, Wait a minute, David. We're going to take David's question, and then you've got 10 more minutes in this session. Okay. Okay, so um, I just wanted to point out that there are so many layers to what's being done in, the, in this discussion, and um, there are points of disagreement, but, I, but they're not at the essential matters of what is the Bible, uh, where is the authority, um, do we agree on theology, these kinds of things. This is methodological. This is hermeneutics. And um, I just want to say thank you for bringing out how narrative works because we want to ask theological questions sometimes before we've done the exegesis of the actual text where there's a, a narrative structure. And some of the questions we're asking are in, in the background of the discussion to the, the economy of language we've said. What's, what's Moses actually talking about in the passage? And I think that's been a lot of your point. And I think, <clears throat> I think this gets to a methodological thing that, that um, we haven't always come to grips with, and it is this. Um, is the Bible the, the body of truth where the authority is because it's God speaking, or is our 
understanding of it in a theological categorization is that the body of truth and the Bible is just serving the, the task of getting us to that body of truth, that, that systematic theology. I think that error of, of saying our theology is inspired instead of the scriptures are inspired explains a lot of the problems in church history with bad theology mm-hmm. because we lose contact with the, with the, the source. So I just want to say um, I don't think you're disagreeing about the sacrifices. I think oh, you're, no. you're pointing out exegetically Let's look at what the, the narrative in Moses' design is actually saying. Just, right. just to, yeah, and I appreciate that because what we're talking about is how we are exposition. We're not arguing the exegesis because you didn't ask me one question about the, narr- the narrative that's in Genesis. We had to go outside the text, and that's, that's exposition. All I'm saying is we can get from exegesis to exposition, and maybe our exposition would look different. I'll take more questions or I'll move on. Whatever you like to do. Uh, you, know, you know what your plan, you know what your outline is, so I just want to make sure you sure. were watching, to, watching the time and sure. for Not your a planning. Problem. Can you cover Ruth in five minutes? Absolutely. <laughs> very, very quickly. Uh, sure. One thing I was thinking about while I was sitting here listening to all this is that we've got all these awesome pastor teachers here and they teach us as believers but I was thinking of New Tribes Missions philosophy when they're talking to the unchurched and starting from Genesis which is what I appreciate about that ministry is when they're reaching the unchurched and those who have never heard which is becoming more and more my American friends and neighbors that I'm around they have no clue so I can't jump to the New Testament before I start with the God who created us and then move forward. And the understanding will come, again, the faith. But if you've ever watched that film from New Tribes, Mm -hmm. once they (laughs) grasped and Jesus was finally uh, told, you know, who he was and what he was there for, they had already had all of those narratives from that Old Testament and then they were able to move forward. Mm-hmm. So the audience really makes the difference. Right. As a mature believer sitting in a church, I fully expect what Robbie was talking about. I want that on a Sunday morning. But I'm talking to my Jewish friend and walking with her on Monday morning. Sure. I may be at a, a different part, a point of view as I'm presenting a passage through her. And she, I have to start at the beginning. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And that's an apologetic issue that we're dealing with. All right, let's really quick, we'll go through Ruth, and we'll do the same, so I think we're not going to necessarily do everything, but let's go through some of it. Okay, why narrative all? Again, the story's been consciously assembled by the author for a calculated effect on the audience. He wants to communicate something to us, and he designs his story in that way. So if you look at Ruth chapter 1, Now, it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. All right, this is where I want you to put on your antecedent theology hats. When you hear the word famine, we're not going to go forward. We're going to go backwards. And where would we go backwards to? What's that? Oh, you get an A for the class. Yeah, blessings and cursings. So when you see the word famine, what do you assume about Israel's walking with God? cursed we can go home now because now you know the setting of the book and he also sets up the pattern 
In Genesis 1, I mean, Ruth 1, we see famine. And what do we see at the end of chapter 1, verse 22? We saw famine in the beginning of the chapter. What do we see at the end of the chapter? And I'm not saying this is chiasm. Don't go there. But we see what? So what will we assume based on Deuteronomy? What's the word? Blessing. He doesn't tell you, oh, by the way, Israel's now starting to walk with God. And if Israel's starting to walk with God, what do we expect God to do to Israel? You notice the narrator controls what we see and don't see, how we see it and when we see it. He is very good. He doesn't tell you, oh, by the way, Israel's now walking with God. And all of us would go, oh, yeah. And now, soon enough, they're not going to walk with God. They're not going to walk with God again. Then we're not going to walk with God again. And it's like a ping pong match. But what does he tell us? He doesn't tell us. He shows us. And he does it by these words. Famine. And the author wants you, and this is where we were talking before, how much background information. When you say the word famine, he wants you to think Deuteronomy 28, 32. And when you see the word harvest, he wants you to think blessings. So here we see the scene... And Ruth, we have Moab, which really nothing good happens in Moab except people die. Then we have Judah. We have the fields of Bethlehem. We have the threshing floor, the city gates, and the house of Boaz, which I think it's interesting because it talks about the house of Boaz and this idea of building a house because Naomi came back, what, in her house? Empty from her house. The plot... Here, let's skip plot because I want to go to the characters. Uh, let's do conflict since we have just a few minutes. See, we have the characters. You know it's Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. The husband and the kids, they're what? Flat characters. What do they have to do? Die. die. That's all they have to do is die. And even in chapter 2, when the... Um, Oh, the servant in charge of the reapers. What does he do? He just has to tell the story to introduce Ruth to Boaz. He's called an agent. He just helps move the story along. This is like anybody Star Trek fans? Okay, aren't there always one person in Star Trek? Is he called the red shirt guy? And you always know what's he going to do. Die or get captured to start this story. He carries the story along. Well, in Scripture, we have sort of the same thing where he just creates the story along. But here, the book is named Ruth, and that may be, a con- that may be an issue because really, what's the story about? The main character is who? It begins with this person and ends with the person. It's Naomi. Ruth is really a foil to Naomi. Naomi is a woman of Israel that should have the faith of God faith of Yahweh, and we see this Moabite, and the scripture is clear that she is a Moabite, reminds us that over and over again. But Naomi comes back in verse 20, and she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord, the Almighty, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? 
since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has inflicted me. Now, I want you to picture this. She's walking about to, to Bethlehem and they're stirring of the crowd. Matter of fact, the Hebrew says, hum, this, um, everybody's mumbling. Is that Naomi? And she says, I went out full and I came back empty. Well, what's wrong with that statement? Okay, but she said, I went out full and I came back empty. What's wrong with that statement? Excuse me? Ruth is right next to her. How would you like to be Ruth at that moment? Well, thanks, Mom. Appreciate that. I've given up my God, given up my land. Now I'm back with you. How is it that Ruth is not saying the same exact thing? See, Naomi says, I'm bitter. And she says, call me Mara. Now, this is fascinating. Read through the rest of the book. What's the narrator call her through the rest of the book? Naomi. Why doesn't he call her Mara? Because the narrator and the author doesn't believe she is empty as she thinks. Why? Because Ruth is standing right next to her. And if you turn to the end of the book, I hate doing this, but we have to read the end. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And notice, Ruth leaves the scene. Then the women said to Naomi, Blesses the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. Oh, you have no idea how famous this boy is going to become. <laughs> may he also be your restorer of life and sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, by the way. Has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the neighbor woman gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Ruth, Naomi. Man, Ruth doesn't even get credit for bearing the child. (laughs) And that's how you know who the main character of the story is. It starts with Naomi and it ends with Naomi. And Ruth is the foil. How is it that this foreigner has more faith than this Jew? simply because she allows her circumstances to dictate her walk with God. Ruth went through every single thing that Naomi went through, except losing a son. And here she's clinging to God, willing to follow his law. And she's blessed. Do you think people in our church need to hear that story? Do you have people in our church that feel like they're empty They're bitter the way life has treated them. And they don't say it to you on Sunday morning, but they believe that God has done them dirty. And you know what? The book of Ruth shows they're not as empty as they think. Okay, let's stop there.